Hello, you're listening to Deeply Curious. My name is Cody Jensen, and joining me in our New York City studio apartment is Sarah, my wife. Hello. And also, for the first time in Deeply Curious <laughs> history, an actual expert that is going to actually know what we are talking about. Uh, we are joined by Dr. Soph. Hi. Um, Deeply Curious is produced by Christian B. Schmidt, an associate produced by Maddie Lane, Karen Carmen, Greg and Christy Jensen, and Greg Stratton, with additional support from our staff and crew members of the Jensen AV Club. If you want to learn more about how you can support the show and get access to exclusive content, head over to JensenAV.club. Yes. Um, Dr. Soph is a clinical psychologist, life coach, and yoga teacher. You can learn more about her work and more about her at drsoap.com. And she is also has a series of video teachings on the mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me <laughs> on. I'm very excited and quite nervous. <laughs> um, okay, so I think you have a, a large breadth of knowledge, um, but we only have a short amount of time. And I think the some things that I feel most interested in and i think also an easy um jumping mm -hmm. point into this conversation is what are emotions <laughs> <laughs> massive question and great question because it's something every single human on this planet has mm -hmm. and experiences moment to moment day to day yet emotions are probably one of the most misunderstood psychological phenomenon at least in my experience so most people, I think, think our emotions are to be feared and avoided at all costs. Mm -hmm. Is that something you've heard or experienced? Yeah. I mean, I think you definitely tend to downplay emotions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Push them away, hoping mm -hmm. they won't come by. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. And even if you have them, I feel like it's told like not to trust your emotions. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think as well as a man, you'll have been taught different things about mm -hmm. emotions mm -hmm. than perhaps your wife has, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So in my mind, what are emotions? They are messages from your brain trying to tell you that something has happened in your environment that your brain either wants you to turn towards or away from. So if you think about the way that we evolved, our brain only cared about one thing, survival. So it spends its time scanning the environment, looking for things that will help us thrive as well as survive and looking for the things we need to avoid. So, it separates things out into good and bad. When it detects one of them, you have this series of downstream events, so just things that happen after. If it's found something it deems good, so for our survival, suddenly you have oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, these feel-good hormones that make you want to do more of that thing. Okay. But if your brain senses something that it thinks is going to be dangerous, the next set of events include adrenaline, cortisol, stress hormones. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to turn away from it. If, for example, it is a threat to a resource, something that you need, you'll have this boost of the fight or flight response, but it'll be an, kind of like an anger response and you'll turn towards it because you'll fight to get that thing back. If it's a tiger at your door, <laughs> it will prepare you with all the things that you need to either fight for your life or run for your life. So probably the most common emotions, happiness, sadness, um, excitement, interest, you know, the ones that we're really used to. 
And so I suppose happiness is the one that we might associate most with turning towards. So oxytocin, dopamine, um, and anger or fear might be the ones we associate most with turning away. So in short, your emotions are the messages from your brain to tell you what to do next. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. So in, I guess, breaking it down that our emotions are primal. Mm. Like the it is, it is thinking of ourselves as animals in a mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess in what do you find... Um, this is something that kind of fascinates me in, in, in this realm of like, do you find people um, are comforted by that or more reject it because to accept that you are animal is to sometimes reject your humanity? I mean, such a great question. And I'm going to add in, that's actually made me think of something I should probably add, which yeah. is the thing that separates us from that early animalistic mm-hmm. response is the fact that now what we deem as good and bad has nothing to do with the tiger at your door. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you in New York, but I haven't <laughs> had a tiger at my door in a while. Instead, the things that, are, um, that we respond to link to the things we've been told are good or bad. Okay. That might be an explicit message in terms of morals. So um, don't hurt your friends. Don't um, swear. I'm swearing. I'm giving a really bad list of examples. But anyway, you know the things that are clearly good, clearly bad. But then there's the other things, the more subtle message you get from the environment, right? Every time you open a magazine, you go on social media, every time you watch a film, you are told quite clearly, even though they're not necessarily in words, who is worthy, who deserves power, respect, space, money, time. Your brain then sees that and separates that into good people, look, act, sound, behave, have those things. People less worthy are the people who don't have that stuff. Okay. So the most simplistic answer of the way the brain adapts to that is you might then, for example, become a perfectionist. Sticking with this idea, your brain has separated perfect into good, imperfect into bad. Suddenly... Anytime something happens in your environment, in your life, where you might act imperfectly, your brain interprets it like the tiger at the door, the threat to your survival. And suddenly you have the adrenaline, the cortisol, you have the fight or flight response. You either turn towards the thing and attack it, or you turn away, become demotivated, and don't engage in that activity. So, great question. No one wants to think of themselves as simply as animals. And there are lots of things that separate us out, mainly the frontal lobes, but that's a big conversation, not for now. (laughs) Um, But the thing that makes us particularly different is that now good or bad is based on your society's beliefs of what's good and bad. Mm -hmm. So we are quite different. Yeah, You're not going to see an animal see its reflection in a pond, panic because it doesn't look like what it sees in magazines, (laughs) and then start then become aggressive or run away. Mm -hmm. Whereas you will see humans do that. Mm -hmm. So in our, I guess, fight or flight evolution Mm -hmm. adaptation, um, I guess, do you see, because it's shaped through society, Mm. in your opinion, do you see it as a good or bad thing that we have like adapted in this way to um, have that response towards societal pressures versus actual animalistic (sighs) pressures. No, I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, okay, I'm going to make that more clear. So 
the fight or flight response is one of the most important things for our survival as a species. So mm-hmm. obviously I don't hate it. It's right. been working for thousands <laughs> of years, millennia. Yeah. All animals have that. Mm-hmm. What I hate is our brains haven't become more nuanced. Yeah. Mm. So, for example, right now, even though I'm not in danger, yes, mm-hmm. because I'm in a social pressure situation where there's a camera there, you're looking at me, mm-hmm. there's lights. My brain is interpreting this as a space in which I could do something wrong. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so be socially unacceptable. So right now I've got a mild fight or flight response going, there's no tiger in here, is there? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so right now, think about all the things you need if you were to fight or run for your life. Your heart would start to beat a bit faster to get blood going around your system as quickly as possible. You start breathing more shallowly because you're trying to get in as much oxygen as possible. Your muscles start to tense because if you were going to fight or if you're going to run, you need to be able to spring out of your body, out of this position, like like a spring that's wound really tight so all of your energy all of your muscles tense and then all of the energy is sent to your arms and your legs more than that the parts of your body that you don't need to fight or to run such as stomach bladder all of the blood from those areas gets sent to where it's needed so your arms and your legs meaning that those areas start to shut down totally safe but that, you know, butterflies mm-hmm. or, you know, when you need mm-hmm. a wee suddenly when, you, um, when you're anxious, that's just because the blood's leaving those areas. The other thing that your brain does is because it's thinking you're in a threatening situation, we need to help problem solve. Is it goes through all of its stored memories of times that were similar to this, hoping it'll find a really helpful outcome. Okay, so what does that mean for right now? If I was about to fight or run, great. But right now I'm sitting at a table with you. But it means that my heart is kind of pounding. My muscles are kind of tense, not really. My stomach could feel weird. I'm starting to get a bit sweaty because an efficient machine is a cool machine. So if I was gonna fight or run, it would be better if I was cool. My mind is going through all of the other situations (laughs) in which I could have made a mistake. So it's like, oh, do you remember that one time you really embarrassed yourself publicly? Yeah, that was bad. And what about this time? Oh yeah, no, it really could go badly. So. The reason I don't like how the fight or flight has stayed with us and how it's now linked to what society tells us is good or bad is because for many of us, we're now in really normal situations, feeling awful, sweaty, panicky, like we need to escape with our mind reminding us of everything bad that's happened. And particularly because I think in this society, or at least in the UK, I think, in, you know, I'm British, so I can only speak for my experience. But I think it's similar here. Because we're not taught any of this. You're not taught that you have a fight or flight. You're not taught that your emotions are messages. You're not taught that that crazy, shaky feeling you have on the inside is just because your brain has misinterpreted how dangerous the situation is. Because of that, most people have a very normal experience and understandably misinterpret it, thinking it's something dangerous, terrifying, and something that um, could escalate into something even more scary. You know, probably the thing I work with most is people who feel like, well, who have thoughts such as, I must be going crazy because I have these things going on inside me. Yeah. 
And it's really lovely to be able to say, you're really not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're really not. Your brain's just really thinking there's a tiger in the room mm-hmm. and there's loads of things you can do about it. Yeah. So that's a long answer yeah. to your question. That's good though. Yeah. Okay. So in the, I guess, this fight or flight, like is how in our modern context of being a human, does the fight or flight response manifest itself into emotions? Like what emotions does it manifest itself into? Okay, so the obvious one is fear and anxiety, but I'm gonna talk about a different one, is that okay? Yeah. Okay, I wanna talk about anger. Because anger is one of those emotions that people think angry people have, okay? So we've talked about how you'll have the fight or flight response because you think you're under threat and you feel anxious. But sometimes you have this burst of anger and that might be because there's been an injustice or because you're in danger. And you know that feeling, it's almost like you're, um, you've got this building tension in your chest and in your throat, maybe you even start to see red. And there's a real window of opportunity in which you can stop yourself before yeah. you just tip over. Yeah. <laughs> now, every human on the planet has anger. Mm-hmm. Lots of us are taught not to experience it or that we shouldn't experience, so we cut off from it. But that's not a thing. You still feel the anger on some level. Now, the reason I want to talk about it is because the fight or flight may come up because you're actually angry about an injustice or, and I think this is so fascinating, anger is what we call a secondary emotion. Have you heard of that before? No. Okay. So on the surface, you might see anger. Yeah? So we might have had a conversation and suddenly I'm swearing at you. Don't worry, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but you think, wow, she's really angry right now. Actually, it may be something totally different that's going on underneath. So anger is something we call a secondary emotion or what I really like is this expression, there's anger is the guardian of sadness or anger is the guardian of vulnerability. So let's think about it. Depending on what you were told was unacceptable when you were young, I think I'm going to go for a really obvious, uh, what we call a hegemonic narrative about men, okay? So often young boys are told, never be seen as weak, never be seen as vulnerable, never allow someone else to put you in a position of powerlessness. That might be um, intimated to you rather than said uh, directly. Okay, so now... Say you are in a situation where someone else makes you feel vulnerable, makes you feel less than. Well, you can't show that vulnerability, right? Right. Suddenly anger Mm -hmm. comes to your aid. Mm -hmm. So your fight or flight has been activated because remember vulnerability is bad. The threat response has been activated and suddenly this really powerful anger comes out of you. Suddenly, for example, you feel like, No, that's unacceptable. And then you take the other person down because you've got this really full on fight or flight. Suddenly the power balance has been rectified in a way. I mean, obviously in a really unhealthy way, (laughs) but but you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So in that situation, the problem is the fight or flight response comes to your aid, but again, in a way that's not that useful because what would have been helpful is to say, actually that thing you just told me made me feel really vulnerable and really small. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about that? Yeah. But the other person goes away thinking, you were angry, you go away thinking, I'm angry. Anger escalates, the other person hears the anger, then they become defensive, then their fight or flight activates. And so anger to me is the most interesting emotion Mm -hmm. linked to the fight or flight because it's the one that people know the least about. Mm -hmm. Interesting. 
I, I just, I find just, uh, I guess examining my life through what you just said. Um, I think the secondary emotion of anger manifests itself probably the most closely with embarrassment. Yes. Just yes. if I feel embarrassed, then instead of like, just saying I'm embarrassed. <laughs> you embarrassed me. Yes. It is now I hate you. Like, yes. Oh my god. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Can you think of a time recently when that's happened? Um, I don't think so. Do you? Can you think of something? Um, not off the top of my head, yeah. but it's definitely like a. It was a definitely when you were younger, like early twenties. Right. That was yeah for sure the response. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in these, um, I guess fight or flight so i mean that makes me think like if is fight or flight ultimately a core mm -hmm. problem with the way in our um mental health mm -hmm. and our relationship communication mm -hmm. and then ultimately is this evolutionary thing that we haven't become to be able to grasp like <laughs> it and like well more so be able to control it mm. um, leading to all of the problems in our world in the divisiveness in the lack of communication, the lack of just civ civility. Such great questions. <laughs> um, okay. So firstly, is it a core problem? Yes. I'd say one thing I'm going to add is it's not all bad. Okay. Your fight or flight, not only is it kept us alive, and genuinely, if you step out in front of a car, your fight, fight or flight response is going to pull you out of that posi position before you've even thought. It's a miracle. Also, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of the stress response makes you more efficient than you've ever been. Have you noticed that? You've got a mm -hmm. deadline. It's too far away. You're like, mm -hmm. it's a week. And then you're like, oh my God, I left it too late. And suddenly you do it. So that's yeah. the first thing. It's not always a problem. The problem is we tip over that, that optimal amount and suddenly mm. we can't do anything. Yeah. Okay. Is it a core problem in relationships and the world and in ourselves? Yes. Because it's one of many pieces of difficulty. So for example, um, to me, the reason that we have emotional difficulties is rarely because there's something wrong inside of you. Right? That's what I was taught when I was started studying. People have difficulties because they're vulnerable. They have something wrong inside them. <laughs> Generally, people experience significant distress because of things that happen in their lives or things that have happened in their families' lives, right? We know about intergenerational trauma now, for example. We know that um, that first year of your life, the first few years of your life, the way that a caregiver attends to you lays down your distress tolerance, your ability to understand your emotions, your ability to relate. So that's, that's why fight or flight is part of it. Because actually, depending on those first few years of your life, your brain will be wired in a way that predicts how your fight or flight will be activated. So say you had a really calm environment with a caregiver who was sensitive, always there for you, attuned, saw you and said, don't worry, you're crying because of X. You just have to do Y. Like a bird, you know, like a mummy bird, like mm -hmm. um, num, 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 mm -hmm. chewing up the worm and feeding it back. That's yeah. what it's like with emotions as a child. If you have that, your fight or flight response will activate in times of danger and stress, but it will be more manageable. So it'll come up 
I don't want to say in the right way, but I mean, as in, it'll take more for that response to happen and it'll switch off more easily. If you grow up in an environment of danger, your fight or flight response never switches off. So that lays the foundation for how you're going to have fight or flight later. And that will then obviously play out in relationships in the world. And then obviously whatever you're taught about what's good and bad, that will play out in relationships later on. Whatever you've done to protect yourself as a young one, that will play out in relationships. And your fight or flight, the defenses, that will be how you show up when you suddenly attack, for example, or shut down. In societal problems, if people knew about their fight or flight, if people cared enough about it, if they understood their own personal defenses and why they felt so strongly when someone questioned them or felt so strongly when they tried to ask for a change in structure in their environment. If people, it's not enough to listen. If people listened to that and did the work around that and then they'd be able to have different relationships, different kinds of conversations. They'd be able to show up to conversations differently and it would change our environment. So it's part of it, but it's not everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes me think about like, if I wonder, and none of us will have an expert answer to this, but just wondering like in that, basically in child rearing and mm. being in these environments. And if your fight or flight never shuts off, mm. that means you're in a constant state of fear mm. and anxiety. Mm. And if you're in that state, what choices are you going to make in your personal life in a geopolitical like environment? Oh my word, absolutely. And you know, how are you going to fear others mm. and and people that you are not familiar with what decisions you know it, what decisions is that fear going to lead you to make mm. in regards to how you feel about immigration let's say or you know yes. if things like that and so. equally if you grew up in a, an overly safe environment mm. um that affects your geopolitical decisions as well because you can't this is slightly different to the fight or flight but mm -hmm. you may never be able to conceptualize the plight of another hmm. mm. Do you see what I yeah. mean? Yeah. So you basically, you have a hard time with empathy. Mm. Well, hmm, not biologically necessarily or to do with the way that you're raised, but just more and more I see in our environment that people in extreme positions of privilege can't possibly mm -hmm. conceptualize yeah. um, what it's like to be someone else. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's more, so not necessarily empathy, but more so the curse of knowledge. Yes. That yes. you can't even fathom what it's like to not be you. Yeah. Yeah. Not because they have a psychological problem, though. Just right. saying that to the camera, not because <laughs> yeah. they have a psychological problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just like in that is the case with every profession or expertise ever. I mean, mm. it, even with um, like your expertise of a psychologist you mm. could reach a point of knowing every scientific word and knowing the backstory to the things that you say and then whenever you you know if you have end up with the curse of knowledge you try to explain it to somebody in the way that you understand and the other person's like what are you even talking mm. about and you're like why don't you understand that that seems like pretty basic people learn through yeah. experience yeah that yeah. just is true so for example in therapy talking is rarely enough there's so much doing that you have to mm -hmm. have. Mm -hmm. But um, people in positions of political power, for example, rarely have the experience. So they can have the cursive knowledge, like you're saying, but they can't feel it in their hearts. You know, it's often the people who have been um, the most oppressed, the people who have experienced the most distress, who have done, who've had to go through a lot of personal transformation. They tend to be the people with more of a collective mindset. 
with more of an empathy because they've felt it, they've experienced it. Actually, often, you know, that personal transformation is what leads to social transformation. And it's a shame. I'm not saying you have to experience it, but it, you will notice that people who experience more distress tend to be, not always, the ones who show up for other people. And often, therefore, politically, people in the highest places who've not necessarily been handed everything on a plate, but lots of people are there because of their family situation, because they've come from privilege and they've been able to be educated in a really um, safe and expensive setting. Because they haven't had that experience, they just can't get there. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. So uh, I just thought of an example to the question of, you know, embarrassment leading to anger. Mm. Um, and it, this may not be a personal example, but it made me think about in New York City how nobody is ever wrong. Um, <laughs> it's one of the things I love yeah. about space. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, if you step out in the street mm -hmm. or you're biking or whatever and you have the red light, but somebody who is totally in the right gets in your way, mm -hmm. those people will get angry like mm -hmm. you get angry like you, you are in the crosswalk and somebody honks at you and they have the green light and you're like you know flipping <laughs> them off and cussing at them Doing and like i'm walking here and they're yeah. like i have a green <laughs> yes, yes and it, you know it's kind of like it's just that i don't know if that may be embarrassment but it's definitely like not wanting to admit that you're, admit wrong. That you're wrong and which i guess essentially is the definition of vulnerability mm -hmm. so you know, the lack of vulnerability or being scared of vulnerability leads yeah. to anger so yeah and another one that made me think of is you know in relationship i don't know i'm not necessarily <laughs> um, but often when you're in a relationship um your partner might call you out on something mm -hmm. right maybe it's something like you didn't clean up after yourself or maybe you made them feel a certain way or maybe you did something that's you know not great they call you out and you'll often notice that you're responding with anger and defensiveness before you've even really computed what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I'm quite a messy person. <laughs> so I can think of lots of times when I've been like, well, if you hadn't, you know, insert some totally unrelated thing here. Right. I, I'm shouting, trying to make myself feel better because they made me feel small and now I feel powerful and now they look small and now both of us feel terrible, but also somehow satisfied. Um, yeah, that is one of those places where having to admit that you've done something wrong or made a mistake involves so much courage. Mm -hmm. Saying that, this, that you did something wrong is outside of what most of us are taught is acceptable in the media, for example, or in our families. Very few of us are taught to fail taught to be vulnerable and um I love your car example because <laughs> when I'm in New York I ride a bicycle and the other day I was riding my riding my bike and I did exactly what you're saying so it was my right of way and I you know went forwards and this guy leant out of this SUV um and I mean like screamed in my face you stupid Mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> um and i was ecstatic i can't even tell you how happy i was <laughs> because you're so right that really to me personifies the difference between here and london okay so in london yes people swear and they shout at each other and i flip the bird all the time on my bicycle because i think i'm in danger but difference is okay in the uk because this shows the socialization thing i think if you are in some kind of situation where anger comes up you rarely express it 
okay? You feel the rage and you're like, oh no, it's fine to the person, okay? <laughs> and then you go away and you seethe about it for seven hours. You tell everyone you meet about this outrageous thing that happened. So the fight or flight is still happening. Yeah. You're still furious. You're still feeling vulnerable and annoyed, but you hold it in and it's much worse. Seven hours of being annoyed. I mean, it's so annoying. In mm -hmm. New York, people scream at each other in a way that looks like there's going to be death. Mm -hmm. And they walk away just like, done. Yeah. <laughs> because the fight or flight response is meant to be quick, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. You're meant to have an outburst with it. Yeah. You're meant to exercise as in like run. <laughs> You're meant to fight. And it should switch off. And I think New Yorkers are really good at just having that fight or flight and it's switching off and moving on. Hmm. British people could learn a thing or two from that. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so switching gear a little bit mm. of it, in our, the, these fight or flight responses that manifest themselves into anxiety and fear and eventually anger, things like that. In, let's say like you are about to give a presentation at work and you feel that feeling, which is, you know, anxiety bubbling up or in, you know, your uh, romantic relationship, mm -hmm. you are being called out rightfully, <laughs> yes. um, which, you know, gives you the strongest response because you know you're in the wrong. Yeah. I guess in those moments, like in whenever you feel the anxiety or you're feeling uh, the fear, what should we do mm. in that moment to not allow it to fully, <laughs> you know, take yeah, over? Yeah, not buy into it. Yes. Yes, okay. So first things first, the fight or flight response has been around for thousands of years. So nothing I'm going to tell you right now is going to help you immediately. Immediately, It's going to take practice. Anything I tell you that you try in the moment without practicing before being anxious, you'll try it and your anxious mind will be like, oh, <laughs> yeah, right. I've been doing this for thousands of years. I really do know what I'm talking about. Like, I've got this. Oh, you're going to do a breathing exercise? No way. Um, okay. So things you can do. First thing is step away, especially in relationship, whether with your family, anyone, because as soon as, remember, a little bit of fight or flight, functioning well too much and what i haven't said so far is your frontal lobe shut down so the bit of your brain responsible for processing and decision making it's offline the thing you're that just, makes us human yeah, yeah the bit, yes well remembered exactly <laughs> so you're just responding with your limbic system your emotional system so first thing step away that might involve saying to someone i'm sorry i just need a moment take a breath okay next thing remind yourself why the experience is happening so I'm feeling really defensive because I'm feeling vulnerable or I'm feeling really anxious because I actually care about this work. And these feelings I have in my body are the fight or flight response. So my brain preparing me to fight and run for my life, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's the second thing. Remind yourself why it's happening. Now, third thing, if you can exercise, remember I said it's meant to be followed by a burst of activity. Otherwise, these are both equally important breathing exercises okay do you guys know about breathing exercises from what i've learned from you on happy not perfect <laughs> <laughs> okay well that's great did you give it a go i have not people never <laughs> do it okay yeah, like actually like... i did with the sleep when it because with the yes. uh, how to fall asleep of like focusing on the breath instead oh, of focusing good. on yeah 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 amazing okay <laughs> yeah. it's one it's really funny i have a real bugbear about it people often ask me if there was one thing you could get people to do what would it be and i always funnily enough really aggressively because it makes me feel really <laughs> yeah. like defensive like yeah. no one ever does it um like breathing exercises anyway so 
breathing exercises. I'm going to just really basically run through it because if anyone does it after watching this video, I will be so happy. Okay. So remember, when your brain is preparing you to fight or run, your heart is getting faster. You're breathing from here. Exercise and a burst of activity switches it off. But the other thing you can do is actually signaling to your body it's time to relax. So for a breathing exercise, simply, you want to notice which part of your body you're breathing most into. So one hand on your chest, for example, and one hand on your lower ribs. Breathing through your nose, you just notice which hand is moving the most. Then with intention, send your breath down into the bottom hand. So that's how you start to shift the way that your body is accepting the oxygen. You might have to imagine it at first. Then you want to breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth, almost like you're blowing, flickering, um, making a candle on a cake flicker. So you don't want to blow it out. Because if you think about it, now we're minimizing the amount of oxygen you can take in and maximizing the amount of CO2 you can breathe out, which is the opposite of the... <gasps> of anxiety finally you breathe in for a count of four hold for one out for the count of six hold for one because again we're slowing everything down so we've got step away tell yourself what's going on do something so either go for a run breathing exercise i ideally want you to be doing all of these things all the time <laughs> okay and then when your body is feeling more relaxed when you're feeling like you're a bit more in charge of your thoughts re-engage yeah, gotcha. it's good. But final thing, breathing exercises, unless you practice them through the day when you're feeling calm, they're not going to come to your aid when you're stressed. So if you know you've got exams coming up, start preparing them in advance. Yeah. If you know you're having difficulty in your relationship, start practicing them in <laughs> advance. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah. Okay, so I want to focus more now on anxiety mm -hmm. in general because... I think that that is, it's a, it's, I think a hot topic right now, one, but also because people are more anxious now than ever. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, many think because of our access to social media and, um, I could see how in social media is activating our primal brain in just the fact that we get dopamine hits mm, like ev every single time we open <laughs> our phone and we never want to stop. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, possibly depleting our mental energies to be able to deal with these things. Um, the added pressures of even more comparison in our life. Um, comparison leads to anxiety on, on your block, but now you're comparing yourself to the world. Mm, it's relentless. And uh, that, you know, breathing into that so first question would be in your experience mm -hmm. um as talking to people um <laughs> do you agree with the studies and things that anxiety is more rampant now than ever okay yes is the short answer it's complicated okay. i do think that it's kind of hard to know really because we've only really just had a clear concept of what anxiety is it's only now that mental health is seen as being even remotely acceptable. You know, it's not even a hundred years ago that people were being sterilized for having poor mental health. I know those are extreme situations, but people wouldn't have necessarily come forward in the past and we wouldn't have necessarily known what we were looking at. So on the one hand, I'm not sure 
But certainly from what I'm reading and what I'm seeing in clinic or what I'm just speaking, when I'm speaking to people or when I'm speaking to family members, for example, you know, generations ago, like my grandparents, for example, it really does seem to be getting much stronger. And recently I spoke to um, a student doing a psychology undergraduate in the UK working with Gen Z or Gen Z, as you say. here, (laughs) And she was talking about... um, all of the research that's coming out that's showing particularly in younger people because there is no off switch. Like you say, you can compare yourself from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to sleep. You know, thinking about um, being told whether you're good enough. You know, thinking about, it's not very long ago that we didn't have Instagram where you were comparing yourself to magazines or the people on the block. Now you literally have a device that can tell you in numbers of likes how people feel about you that is one of the most undermining things that can happen to you you post something and people get to vote on whether you're enough and that just that sense of i am not enough constantly being with you would lead your fight or flight to be activated all all the time remember we're talking about society telling you when you're safe and when you're not. Society teaches nearly all of our brains, if you're not socially acceptable, you're in danger. So yeah, every time you every time you open your Instagram app, you're prepping your brain, not only for this like mm, dopamine hit, this really rewarding feel-good experience, you're also most likely activating your fight or flight response. Instagram has been found to be the most detrimental for your health out of all the so- social media apps. And it doesn't surprise me at all. It's basically a slot machine But instead of gambling money, you're gambling your Mm self-esteem. So put that on a (laughs) t-shirt. Just so you know, I use social media a lot, and so you know, no one is free from it. True. So in that, um, would you say that people that are well, I guess the first question would be: Do you think that some people are more susceptible to anxiety than others? And then in that question, do you think that if people are more susceptible, do you think that? let's say somebody who's more susceptible to anxiety mm-hmm. should pay more attention and be more thinking more about like how to put more seatbelts on their social media usage than mm-hmm. somebody who's not, or is somebody who's not prone actually increasing their anxiety like in general. <laughs> yeah. And we should all be looking at these things as like, we're, you know, need major restrictions on mm-hmm. our self-control. Really good question. So first one is yes, because I'm not saying there are people who are ill and aren't ill. Any, all three of us could mm-hmm. experience significant distress at any time, depending on our environment. But what we know is that early life experience, the more adverse life experiences you have early on, the more susceptible you are to distress later on. That's not everyone, yes, but it's more likely early distress often and lack of safety and lack of support and lack of emotional um, caring makes you much more likely to experience distress later on. So yes, there are some people who are more vulnerable. Also, for example, say you were hideously bullied in school Mm -hmm. because of how you looked, because of how you acted. Social media is just another space for that. So it will be incredibly triggering. So depending on your life experience, as well as some people... um, Some people do, I'm not negating the impact of genetics and um, hereditary anxiety. It's just not something I really work with um, or 
spend too much time thinking about. Um, so yes, I think some people are more vulnerable. I though, rather than saying, I think certain people need more protection from social media. I think what it is, is all of us need to be taught about our emotions from a young age. Mm -hmm. Like imagine if you were very, very young taught, this happens because of that. If you feel anxious, it's because of this. When you feel anxious, do that. Breathing exercises, mindfulness, those things would be so intrinsic mm -hmm. that you would do them without thinking. Yeah. So then, for example, when you go onto social media, you would notice, oh, my fight or flight is activated. Or, oh, I notice I am having this urge to keep pulling down the refresh thing on Instagram. <laughs> um, and you would be able to um, know how to soothe yourself in a way that none of us can even imagine. You would know how to mindfully choose your behavior rather than falling into this addiction trap. Because that we're, we're all addicted yeah. to Instagram. This yes. isn't just like, um, it's not just that you like it. Right. right. You Your have to rewind is, our brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That dopamine hit you got, you nailed it, right? Every time, it's not just when you go on it, it's even thinking about it. Yeah. Like if I could see my phone right now, which luckily I can't. Oh no, I thought about it and it felt good. <laughs> <laughs> you like the phone, you raise that. Because it's expecting the dopamine hit, yes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you pick it up and it's like, oh, firing, delicious, amazing. You're like, ding, 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 ding. You put it down. Mm -hmm. Now you have the withdrawal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed that your brain goes back to your phone every maybe five minutes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're stuck in an addiction loop. So yes, obviously certain people must need more support in certain areas. That's just the reality of life. But actually all of us need to understand our emotional needs and our addictions to our phone and understand how to look after each other mm -hmm. in those spaces. What I, I can see um, people being stuck in an anxiety loop as well in this, in that being on Instagram mm -hmm. gives them anxiety because of everything that's there. <laughs> yeah. But then saying like, well, I'll just delete Instagram. Mm -hmm. Now that you have anxiety of the fear of missing out mm -hmm. and the anxiety of, mm -hmm. well, now I no longer exist. Mm -hmm. So what advice do you have for people who are stuck in that anxiety loop? Oh, I'm still trying to figure that one out for myself, <laughs> to be honest. Because is it better to be off? Right. Mm -hmm. Or do, is it better to know your enemy? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's going to differ per person. Mm -hmm. Because if something makes us anxious and we avoid it, we think it's better for us. But actually it makes our anxiety worse. So I will try and describe this. Something makes you feel anxious, feel terrible. You avoid the thing, your anxiety goes down, yes? But your brain doesn't learn that the thing wasn't dangerous or that you can cope. Your brain learns, the only reason I stayed safe in that situation is because I avoided that activity, yes? So you don't learn to cope, you don't learn to rely on yourself. You don't learn about the reality of the situation. Then your anxiety comes back up again, even more strongly when you think about that activity or when it comes up again. And suddenly you're like, oh my God, I have to avoid it. I have to avoid it. If you try and turn towards it, your brain is like, no, the only reason you stayed safe last time is because you avoided it. Don't go near there. Don't go near there. It gets louder and louder. Mm -hmm. So you avoid. And then that anxiety pattern is reinforced. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It does. Yeah. So thinking about how that uh, pertains to Instagram, many ways. The person who has anxiety about how they're perceived might go onto Insta, might post on Instagram, yes? Mm -hmm. They post. 
they feel anxious about how, who they are as a person. They post, they get a lot of likes, they're like, oh, I feel good. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because they've avoided the sense of anxiety. Brain learns, I'm okay because other people like me. Not I'm okay because I'm okay. Anxiety comes back in. Am I good enough? You post again. This time people don't like it. You can see how this becomes a problem. Okay. For other people, they learn, when I go on Instagram, I become incredibly anxious, so I'm going to avoid it. Brain learns, I only stayed safe because I avoided Instagram. You see where I'm going with this, yes? But then when you think about Instagram again, you're like, oh my God, it's so stressful. Anxiety response is like, don't go near the phone. It's so dangerous. So sometimes for some people, avoiding Instagram may not be that helpful because what you need to do is just find a way to use Instagram in a way that you can manage in a way that helps you overcome the anxiety and use it in a way that allows you to connect, but doesn't necessarily become something that you fear. It's very complicated and every different person will have a different answer. Mm -hmm. For me, when I started out my Instagram, it created so much anxiety because I'd post and I'd be like, oh my God, what do people think? I'd throw my phone away and I'd run out the house. Now I could have started to avoid it because my anxiety was so bad, but I decided instead that I needed just to learn to manage my anxiety. So face the fear, learn that I could cope and use Instagram in a way that was just once a day for a limited amount of time, where I reminded myself constantly my worth wasn't based on my Instagram following, mm -hmm. <laughs> where I reminded myself that the feelings I felt were based on the fact that this is people's perfect showreel, has nothing to do with reality. So for me, avoidance wasn't the answer, but for some people it really will be. That's really good. <laughs> I mean, I do think like a lot of people are in the conversation now. I feel like in um, culture and society, we start out here and then we do a huge swing mm. to the very opposite, which I feel like is what is happening with mm -hmm. social media now. We're all like, kill it, destroy it, everybody delete everything. And the truth is that that's not an answer. Like you can't give somebody something and then take it back. Mm. So I feel like settling somewhere in the middle is usually what happens. That feels like a really good like yeah, conversation that's not happening yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 um, that loop kind of reminded me of, or like teaching your brain, I guess, mm -hmm. like that something is wrong when it's not actually is, mm -hmm. if you were to be like, you're growing up and your, you know, one of your parents is very afraid of your safety. Mm, and yeah. every time you get close to something like the edge of a road or mm. something like that, and they grab your arm and like, no, no, mm. get back, get back, get back. That like is the same thing of like your brain thinks like, oh, wow, like the activated and you know, mm -hmm. now you are scared to cross a road. Oh, yeah. You know, parental anxiety is fed straight into their children. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So talking about anxiety, um, living in New York for two years, New York itself has caused crazy anxiety for me. Um, all the noise, mm. so much noise mm. all the time. Um, even just like trying to walk down the sidewalk, you know, like <laughs> nobody knows where they're going. Everyone's fighting everything. Like it's there's no flow. Mm. Um, the lack of obviously a little bit of the lack of nature is a thing. Um, but it just caused like a lot of stress for me and anxiety. So like, I mean... And obviously not every person belongs in a major city or whatever. But like if you are in a major city and it is causing you anxiety, like what do you do? Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. In a especially a city like New York where you, you mm. can't really get out of it, you know, mm -hmm. what do you do to like combat that? And also, I think a interesting question would be like, 
what are your views on maybe like anxiety medication or antidepressants? Because I do feel like a lot of people question whether they should be just like taking a pill versus like maybe some more um, holistic approach or whatever. So first things, what do you do if you're stressed out by your city? Yeah. 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 Second thing about medication. Okay. So this is a very stressful city. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. London is a very stressful city, but there is something quite particular I think about New York because of exactly what you said it's so relentless Mm -hmm. isn't it yeah you live in Manhattan Mm -hmm. I mean yeah it's never silent here yeah overstimulation no it really is like your brain is exhausted right yeah your your um it's almost like imagine you have a rain bucket each day where you can put all the shit basically sorry I'm allowed to say yeah you're fine (laughs) in the bucket so like someone shouts at you you miss a deadline like you're running late for the train and as long as the bucket doesn't get too full, the stress response won't get too much. Mm-hmm. And then you go to sleep and it empties out, you hope, and then you start again. In a city where it's noisy constantly, in a city where it's busy constantly, where this competitive nature is unparalleled, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, people are hustling here like I've never seen. Mm-hmm. You rarely get time to rest. Your nervous system really gets time to switch off. So your bucket is just getting fuller and fuller. So the stress response is getting higher and higher. And this relates quite well to the Instagram question of do you leave, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. So the first thing is always trying to understand what is it for you that's particularly stressful. So let's just talk about the fact that it never switches off here. Mm-hmm. So say it's just that. The first thing to try is how do I create a safe place within this insane city? Mm-hmm. So for example, Is that going to be my bedroom? Is that going to be quiet time? Is it some kind of meditation studio? Do I need to literally lie underneath my duvet cover, (laughs) under my blanket, you know, balled up? So it's creating a safe and quiet space, the antithesis of what it is outside. Mm -hmm. Again, mindfulness and breathing exercises. That's my answer to absolutely everything. (laughs) Learning to say no to stuff. Mm -hmm. Prioritizing um, what you need. Because I think people in big cities are this idea of positively selfish. What I mean for that is prioritizing their needs, but it's often in a work way, in a busy way. People are really positively selfish in terms of, actually, this is my time, my energy. I am burnt out. I need to retreat tonight, maybe all week (laughs) and have space for myself. So first thing is trying to carve out quiet time where you can retreat and self-soothe. Second thing is exercise, like really, Not only does exercise give you feel-good hormones, you know, dopamine, all this good stuff, endorphins, it breaks down, catabolizes, is the fancy word, stress hormones. So you know that kind of almost continuous pressing that you can feel on your chest in a city like this sometimes. When you exercise, when your heart races, it starts to break down that hormone. So even if you, I always joke with people, but it only needs to be five minutes of really intense exercise. I always joke that you could lock yourself in a toilet and do, I now know this word in American, jumping jacks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In British, it's uh, star jumps. Oh, (laughs) So that's the first thing. Getting out to the countryside, you nailed it. Like this city, you need to have an escape. So again, trees, the sky, even lying in Central Park or another park, again, gives you this rush of um, anti-anxiety neurotransmitters. But that, again, links into finding your own space. If in the end you can't find a community of people where you're allowed to be vulnerable, who support you through your emotions, because I think community is the answer to everything, and 
taking breaks isn't enough, then yeah, maybe the city has had its time. Mm-hmm. And it's time to go to, for example, example Portland, Oregon. <laughs> I mean, that is exactly <laughs> where we're going. <laughs> um, okay, so all of that being said, what about, like, if if you need more, like, if, mm-hmm. it, you know, like, it, what are your views on medication? Because I think a lot of people might be a little nervous to take mm-hmm. pills or, or overly, overly, yes. overly yes. excited. Yeah. 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 Or, yeah. So if we were sitting in London, we'd be having a slightly different conversation to sitting in New York, I think. Mm. Um, I have really mixed views about medication. Mm-hmm. So probably quite a controversial thing to say is my friends who live in New York are much more heavily medicated than my friends who live in London. And I do think that is a cultural thing. I don't think that it's my friends here are more vulnerable to their distress. Okay. So I do think, for example, okay, I think medication can be really important, particularly for people who are struggling and can't make it to therapy. So one of the most wonderful things that I see is people who are really struggling, for example, with their anxiety, and they're given medication and it gives them just enough of a boost, or more than enough, for them to attend the kind of talking therapy that helps them not only unpack what's going on for them, but give them the skills and the space to move through it, to make permanent or long lasting change. You know, nothing's permanent. I think that for all different kinds of mental health, especially in terms of severe and enduring mental health, you know, lots of people find medication is the only way that they can live the kind of life they want. So I think it is both really useful for certain people. The reason I made that comment about New York people and London people out of my friends is because it feels like, and we have this, we have this in the UK as well, it feels like sometimes people experience a level of emotional distress, they go to a medical doctor and they are put on medication without being given someone who can take the time and sit with that person and try and figure out what's happening for them. And so certain people are put on medication, not really knowing why, and not being given any other solutions. So I would love it if it was more the other way around where it's like, oh, you're experiencing distress. Let's think about why that is. And let's think if we can support you through it. But because of Big Pharma and other reasons financial, that isn't going to happen anytime soon. So my answer is both, both and. I love medication. I also don't love medication. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think in America it's, it's. I kind of, um, for me personally, I would ne- I am not interested on going on medication, but I kind of view it as like a Band-Aid situation. That's how I see it In too. America. Um, I obviously don't know outside of here, but I oh, we have it at home too. Yeah, it I, just seems more prevalent here. Okay, yeah. What I also think find interesting is your um, struggle right now, your wrestle uh-huh. with having loads of anxiety, uh-huh. but and having an adversity like or being adverse to taking medication, and your, I guess just. I guess talk about your thoughts on on that in like in spe- specifically even with like marijuana. Yeah, well, I mean, I just don't I, I do not want to depend on anything mm-hmm. is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um whether it's like a natural medication like marijuana or 
an actual drug pill whatever like i just i do not want to depend on anything Mm. Mm. um also, you want to get to the root cause often, right? Like right. You want to actually overcome it rather than just have this thing that's taking the edge off. Exactly. Yeah. So I've just always been sort of, it's never been a thought in my mind mm. to take medication. Or like if somebody's asked, like, have you thought about, you know, I'm like, no. Can I no, also I don't. ask you one more question? Yeah. Is it also because you're worried about the effect of that thing? I mean, maybe to an extent. I definitely don't want um, anything to dull. Yeah. Yeah. But, well, I actually meant the other way. So... Um, for example, lots of people I know, myself as well, when we've been extremely anxious and we're offered something, whether it's a pharmaceutical or uh, weed, for example, the first thing that goes through many people's minds, mine as well, has been, but I don't know what's going to happen. If you're already feeling anxious, the idea of putting something in your body, even if other people are like, it's so soothing, you're like, but what if it's not? Fight or flight sees foreign body and ramps up the fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. So often... It's not just that you don't want to rely on something. It's actually really scary to put something unknown inside you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really normal. Yeah. Really normal. Yeah. People often, um, people in this kind of thinking pattern, so like mm-hmm. you or me, mm-hmm. often it takes till you hit, for example, rock bottom to be like, okay, I'll just do anything. Yeah. And that's fine. Every person is different. Yeah. Or someone who's, for example, grown up in a family where their parents are both medics. They're just like, yum, 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 yum. <laughs> you know, but everyone is different. Mm-hmm. Some people swear by it. I know people as well who've taken it and said it's made me feel much worse, never again. Yeah. But I have friends who are like, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. So then in that, in somebody who maybe um, doesn't want to do medication, obviously there's all of those other things you mentioned, but like how, what other kind of therapies, like, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like what Mm -hmm. are the best, I guess, kind of uh, therapies you would suggest somebody do? Okay. So uh, firstly, it depends on what you're presenting with. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there are the treatments that are known to be the best for certain things. Um, so, for example, CBT is frontline treatment for anxiety. Mm-hmm. Don't know if you know that. Cognitive behavioral therapy. That's interesting because obviously that's based in research, which is funded by certain studies and based yeah. on studies that can fit certain methodologies into certain tick boxes. So another conversation for another day. <laughs> but basically, um, if, for example, you're talking about anxiety and depression, obviously speak to your local doctor. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if they want you to talk about medication, have that conversation, ask all the questions you're worried about. Mm -hmm. Then in terms of therapy, I'd be thinking if it is, for example, a kind of anxiety or low mood, you want to be thinking about coping skills. So something more practical. Um, Cognitive behavioral therapy, I love this thing called ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. It's a mixture of mindfulness as well as practical skills. Um, There's so, compassion-focused therapy, oh my word, there's so many great things. But... (laughs) The most important thing is your relationship with your therapist. Mm. So speak to your doctor. Find out what kind of therapy is going to work best for you. Ask for a consultation. What's more important is your relationship with your therapist than what you do inside the room. They find that over and over again in Mm -hmm. research. So ask for a consultation. Get to know that person. Do you, you know, mesh with them? Think about then what you can do to embody a kind of therapy. Yoga, for example, it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. You're talking about, okay, not yoga as a fitness exercise. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yoga in terms of the thousands of years old tradition where 
you know, yoga is meant to be the sensation of the fluctuation, um, sensation, cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. It's mindfulness, right? Mm-hmm. But you're moving. If you're doing asana, you're moving at the same time. You know, mindfulness when you're anxious, oh my word. Mm-hmm. Your brain's like, no, you can't concentrate. <laughs> this is the worst. Oh my word, my body feels awful. And now this is happening. And uh. yes. Whereas when you're doing yoga and you're moving, You've got the movement to distract your brain a little bit more so you're able to be a little bit more present. Mm. So you're doing breathing exercises, you're getting safer in your body and you're soothing all of the senses. That makes a lot of sense. And then running and all of those lovely things, dancing, singing. Oh my God, there's so many good things now with really good outcomes. They found, for example, singing in a group is a really good therapy for low mood Mm. because when you're in a collection of people, not only do you feel part of something, but all of your rhythms, your biorhythms, so your heart rate and your breath, they start to sync up with everyone else in the room. Mm. So you have this unbelievably therapeutic experience. It's just absolutely amazing. Mm. So there are all sorts of kinds of useful therapies. And again, the thing I keep not saying, but again, community. Mm-hmm. Aligning with people who are happy to be vulnerable. Aligning with people who are able to say, oh my word, I'm so anxious too. Let's go and zone out. Mm-hmm. Let's go and do something nice for ourselves. Let's do a breathing exercise together. Let's talk about how we're going to not buy into this idea that we need to be perfect all the time and busy all the time. Yeah, that's great. And also really interesting because like the main reasons we are leaving New York Mm. or Portland are New York increases Sarah's anxiety Mm. and we have no community here, which you know, obviously is going to exacerbate that problem. Right. And so moving to a less anxious city Mm. that already has a built-in community for us that we Mm. already know, those people that there's no pretense to the conversation. It's just like you just sit down and you're like there. Oh, my God, the dream. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to change your life. Yeah. It is going to change your life. You know that feeling when you walk into a room and Mm -hmm. people are just like, (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah but not in an over-the-top way where you're like ah mm-hmm. yeah just like come you're enough exactly the way you are then you're like i'm good yeah yeah totally okay so maybe as far as exercises that obviously you've mentioned running a lot and and yoga a couple times are there any particular exercises that you very much prefer to maybe like combat anxiety depression etc other than those two things okay so you can tell that I obviously do those two, right? I'm like, they're great. I do them all the time. Um, hmm. Anything that gets your heart rate up is going to help break down stress. And anything that allows you to breathe slowly and practice mindfulness mm-hmm. is going to help. So swimming, for example. Okay. Um, I've recently taken up boxing. It's an unbelievably good stress, uh, stress breaker hmm. because you're really getting your heart rate up. And also, do you know about the concept of flow? No. Okay. So, you know how none of us are ever in our bodies? Right. Like, ever. Yeah. We're all, like, walking brains, yeah? We definitely (laughs) don't know anything that's going on. Yeah, nothing at all. Like, your emotions start in your body. Yeah. No one knows that. No one knows that they're stressed until their shoulders are in their neck, right? Okay. Flow is the idea of being wholly in your body and in the moment in such a way that the concept of time changes. Hmm. So... People have different experiences personally of what puts them in flow. Some people find writing makes them in flow. That happens to me about one in every 50 times most of the time I'm (laughs) overthinking everything. Other people find um, quite scary sports put them in flow because the brain is 
so obsessed with keeping you alive. So for me, skiing. Because mm. <laughs> my brain is just like, oh my word, don't die. Oh my word, don't die. <laughs> so you're in your whole body. My feet are thinking, my legs are thinking, you know, every part of me. Time goes like that. Because gotcha. you're just you in the moment. You're not in your lists. Okay. The reason I mention this is because not only is it really good for your emotional well-being and rarely ever happens, when I box, I'm very bad at it, okay? <laughs> but I don't care because I'm thinking about a hundred things at once. Jab, hook, everything then has like the left, the right, which is different words. So lead, back, then you're doing all the, the ducks, but you're also, your heart is racing, you're sweating. There's so many things going on that there's no part of you that can be thinking about anything else. Mm -hmm. So suddenly you're in flow. An hour class feels like 10 minutes, apart from that time when your heart's like, you know, you feel like <laughs> you might be sick because you're quite unfit. Um, but the for me, yeah. any exercise where I can experience a moment of flow, mm -hmm. or even better, an extended period of flow, that is where we do well with our emotional well-being. Gotcha. Is there, some, is there a sport, for example, you guys like that makes you feel, doesn't have to be a sport, an activity where you're like, wow, time just flew. I mean, I haven't done it since we came here because uh, I haven't, gyms are too expensive. But mm -hmm. spin classes, Perfect. I love mm -hmm. spin because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it's any sort of extreme sport, yeah. like skiing is perfect example, mm -hmm. like surfing, rock climbing, like anything like that, that um, is f a fun way to get my heart yeah. rate up. Yeah. I, I like lose all sense of time and mm -hmm. forget to drink water. Yes. Forget to <laughs> you eat. dehydrated. Yeah. Your soul yeah. is nourished yes. somehow. Yeah. Versus like any other form of physical exercise mm -hmm. that is the, like the purpose of doing this activity is to get my heart rate up. Yeah. Like I can't just <laughs> yeah i mean i think actually running is one of the worst things that was ever invented <laughs> you I can do it really quickly without having to pay any money yeah which i'm a real cheapskate so yeah. yes yes but rock climbing all mm -hmm. of those things and i just want to say one thing to your spinning mm. okay um i totally get it i think it's addictive more than that mm -hmm. spinning often is accompanied with this really loud music yeah and it's normally dark mm -hmm. so it's what's beautiful about it is you're um your comparison is almost switched off for a moment because yeah. you can't really, I mean, you can see people, but not, but really. not really. Yeah. You have much more a sense of being in your own zone. You can't hear anything. You're almost in a protective, really aggressive womb. Mm -hmm. But, you know, music is fascinating because often in a um, spin class, the music is this kind of poppy, but beat driven mm -hmm. music that. It's almost like being in a club. And what we know about music is if music is predictable, for example, as in you know what's going to happen next, because either you know the song or because it has a, a really, the way it's written means your brain says, I know what will happen next. And it does. You again have these hits of dopamine continuously occurring. Mm. If it links to a memory of yours from when you were doing something pleasant, mm -hmm. then your memory comes up as well and you have another boost of dopamine. Mm. So spinning is one of those, and boxing now, if you go to a shadow boxing class, for example, where every part of the environment is stimulating a feel-good response. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we are reaching the end of our time. And so with that in all of these emotions that we have, and especially anxiety, but I think all of our emotions lead 
um, basically lead to not being able to sleep. Oh um, yeah, <laughs> because we can't turn our brain off mm-hmm. long enough yeah. to actually fall asleep. So, um, and I, I think that you have really good um, thoughts about this and, and advice. So, I guess in the the realm of sleep oh, and yeah. not being able to fall asleep, um, what do you have to offer? Oh, it's so many. There's so many things. <laughs> How many minutes do I have? <laughs> as many as you want. Okay. Okay. So. Um, To your point about the reason we can't sleep is because we're stressed or because of our emotions. That is one specific area. I'm going to split that into two parts. The first part is because we can't sleep because we've got too much on our mind. The second part is because we know we haven't slept Mm. and we're now anxious that we're going to get into bed and don't sleep. Mm. Both of those are enough to make anyone feel just so unstable. Yeah. Okay. So obviously breathing exercises, mindfulness. God, I'm so boring. Uh, there's this thing called progressive muscle relaxation, which you can Google. In fact, just you can go onto my website. It's there for free. Or use Happy Not Perfect, where you work through all of the different muscle groups, tensing them and letting them go. Because again, that sends a, um, this note to your mind of it's time to go to sleep now. Or it's time to rest, first thing. Second thing. Generally, we stop sleeping because our days have been too busy. Our Mm -hmm. brains are too active. Mm -hmm. If that is you, schedule in time, Mm, an hour before bed, for example, where you just get all of that shit out. So it can be that you either just write down all of your worries Mm. and then what you're going to do about it. Or you can do it in a more practical way in terms of on my to-do list I have... Seven million things. And these are the seven million. Work through the ones you can do something about. (laughs) Say what you're going to do. And the other ones, I'm going to set this aside to deal with it tomorrow. The first few times you do this, it's not going to make that much of a difference, maybe, because your brain is still trying to problem solve. So those are two of the things to decrease some of your emotions. You get them out on paper, and then you do your nighttime routine. People who start to get stuck in the cycle... And you notice the thought coming up of, oh my word, what if I don't sleep tonight? That is a slightly different thing. Okay. There are things you can do to make sure you optimize, for example, that you sleep. Firstly, your circadian rhythm. Okay. So the way you sleep and you wake is based on this idea that you almost have this internal 24 hour clock that's ticking away. Mm -hmm. And at roughly the same time each day, it in the morning, for example, it gives you your wakeful hormones. And at nighttime, gives you your sleepy hormones. Problem, lots of things knock this off. So if you are stuck in the cycle of what if I can't sleep and it's causing emotional distress, you need to think about all of these. Okay, what has happened to affect your habits? Have you got jet lag? Have you, when was the last time you drank coffee? Coffee stays in your system for six hours, even if you can't feel it. Mm. So stop drinking coffee at 2 p.m. Alcohol, you think it makes it, you sleepy? Then you have this awful rebound response. You know, when you go to bed, you've had a few drinks, you're like, I'm going to sleep so well. And you're like, I'm wide awake. What's going on? Because you have the opposite rebound. Meals. You don't want to eat a heavy meal. Well, you want to eat a he- your last heavy meal about two to three hours before bed. You're expending a lot of energy when you're digesting. No screen time, people, okay? <laughs> so the, the yellow light that comes through your screen, I mean, the blue light that comes through your screen, sorry, stops the production of melatonin. This is your sleep hormone. Mm. If you have to get an app like Flux, you know, something that puts a yellow layer on, 
put the screens outside of your bedroom. That's tricky because I'm, I also am going to say, but you need to be doing mindfulness. So maybe have that on something else or on your phone <laughs> that you have loaded so you don't have to go on the internet headphones in. Think about your environment. Your, what people don't realize is their bedroom is so key. Mm-hmm. If it's noisy, you live in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. If it's light, if it's uncomfortable, too hot, too cold, it's going to mess with your sleep. Mm. Think about medical conditions. This is something people often miss. Sleep apnea, for example, is this really fascinating thing where people uh, basically, I don't want to tell you about it because it sounds kind of scary. (laughs) Basically, you fall asleep and then this thing happens where you keep waking up because you stop breathing, but then it's not really that you're stopping breathing. Mm -hmm. So you just keep waking up. So that makes you have trouble sleeping. You might have snoring problems. So you can speak to your doctor. But there's one more thing. You've done the stressing stuff. You've done the relaxation stuff. Just don't nap, people. (laughs) Okay, if you're stuck in this emotional, I'm not sleeping, people then nap in the day because they're so tired. Mm -hmm. Throughout the day, this thing called sleep pressure builds up, the pressure to sleep. If you nap, it goes away. Mm. You also mess up your circadian rhythm even more. So then when you get into bed, there's no way you're Mm -hmm. going to sleep. Yeah. Okay, so we're talking about habits, environment, the stuff you do and medical conditions. And one more thing, and people hate this, and to be honest, I'm not sure even I would be able to do it, but they do say that if you're lying in bed awake every night, you start to associate bed with not sleeping. You do not want that to happen. Mm. Bed has to purely be for sleep and sex. Don't work in it and don't lie awake in it for too long. Mm. So they say, for example, lie in bed for 20 minutes. If you haven't gone to sleep, even if you're doing a breathing exercise, Get up and go to a different part of the house where you have soothing things like a book or your mindfulness stuff. Mm -hmm. Do that until you start to feel sleepy, then go and try again. I am not a sleep therapist. I work with people to support their sleep alongside the other stuff. But even I know that no one is going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I barely even ask people now. I'm like, did you do it? And they're like, no, I didn't just get up over and over through the night. I'm like, damn it, but the research says you should. So uh, yeah, don't come to me if you just have sleep problems. I'm more of like, oh, let's think about that on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I think that's everything I know about sleep, just given to you in one go. <laughs> as far as the screen time, how, because don't they say there's like a certain amount of time before bed, you should not look at your screen. What is that like? I don't know the exact amount, but pretty much everything you want to stop doing an hour before bed. An hour before, okay. Many things are two hours before bed. It's just not realistic. Mm. Yeah. How will you know what dogs are on Instagram if you do? It's true. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, do you say to people who say, oh, well, I don't need eight hours of sleep a night? I say, gosh, you're really lucky. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, it's difficult. It's difficult because there have been some studies that showed that when people were only given a a tiny amount of sleep per night, which to me is six hours, that's tiny, uh, just started to adapt to it and didn't need any more. But then there's other studies that show that people start to go actually um, start to hallucinate. Mm. Um, And there's the book Why We Sleep. I don't know if you've read that recently, which basically said that if you don't sleep, it's responsible for almost every terrifying condition you ever imagined under the sun. And now people are obviously terrified about not sleeping. (laughs) So there's just so much information out there that contradicts each other. The Why We Sleep book is by someone who's a real professional in the field. So I do listen to that. (laughs) But 
Yeah. I just always find that like so fascinating of just like in our culture, mm. you know, it is now a competition. Oh, yeah. Of yeah. like how much sleep like you shouldn't get like well i only sleep four hours a a night because i'm so productive and like it's like this new status symbol of america or maybe even the world but especially in america of like not sleeping yeah and it's just ridiculous it's ridiculous like if if i've had like eight hours sleep or longer i'm like oh my word guys last night i slept for nine hours it's amazing (laughs) but again that's because i now surround myself with people who are open to being vulnerable, who are trying to step outside of this pro- productivity competition, mm. who are okay to say, do you know what, I'm exhausted. That really fun thing we we're gonna do tonight, I'm not sure I can do it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I totally agree. The best that. argument I ever heard of of like not sleeping or for sleeping, I guess, um, that just like stuck with me all these years has been that if we didn't need eight hours of sleep, mm-hmm evolution would have gotten rid of hours of sleep mm. a long time ago because mm-hmm. the like evolution in our you know uh adaptation into the world is specifically for us to be the most efficient mm. like our bodies want to make sure we have the ample amount of time for food gathering mm. and you know so on and so forth and if we didn't need the sleep then evolution would have gotten rid of it because that would have gave us more time for hunting gathering but yeah. we do need it so evolution didn't get rid of it and after i heard that i was like yeah i'm just gonna <laughs> that works for me i'm <laughs> keeping <laughs> yeah, totally. no, no need uh no need to even think about this yeah, anymore yeah, yeah. yeah it so. doesn't even matter that i can feel that i just feel better after yeah. all that sleep i've got this piece of evidence yeah. Done. <laughs> yeah i'm so with you cool um i guess before we end is there anything that you would really like to offer the world that like is something that you feel like people need to know or you want people to know that like Gosh, it's so good. Oh, wow. Um, I want people to know that they're okay, right? That that feeling that they're failing, that that feeling that there's something wrong with them isn't a reality because even when you're struggling, it makes sense, right? I think we grew up in a society that tells us there's something wrong with us constantly, constantly. Tells us to compare ourselves all the time. It shows us images of people being perfect, but also being well all the time. Mm -hmm. If you see a movie where someone is struggling emotionally, they're normally cast in the role of like the weak or the failing or the mad or the bad. And our mind is really not nuanced. It sees that and it's like, this is good, that is bad. So we're just, we've been raised to fear all the parts that make us inherently us. And the moment we feel we feel like we're failing. We push those emotions away. We push them down deeper and deeper. And when they pop back up, because it is like a beach ball underwater, remember your brain is trying to give you a message. Mm-hmm. You feel again like, oh my word, I'm not even strong enough to manage this. Then on top of that, the world has told you, don't ask for help. That makes you even more vulnerable. Don't do that. So because we're raised in this state and then we're raised in situations where they're like individual is king, we don't reach out for the kind of help we need. We're not given the help we need until we pay for it often as well. And we don't think to turn to just the person sitting next to us, our friend or our family member and say, do you know what, I'm really struggling because we're so scared about their response. So I suppose my message is one, you're normal. Two, the advice and the help is out there and you don't necessarily have to pay for it. For example, people like me and other psychologists on Instagram, we're trying to decentralize some of that knowledge so you can do some of that healing together. 
But also please reach out for help. It doesn't have to be to a professional, just to someone you know and you trust. Just tell them, I am having a terrible time right now because often when you allow yourself to be vulnerable, another person, the other person, feels permission to be vulnerable back. Mm -hmm. And suddenly conversations change. Suddenly you've gone from the beginning of personal transformation to a bit of a social transformation. If we were all doing that, society would be different. Mm. So you've got this, guys, even if you're struggling, you're okay. And there are loads of people here who can support you. (laughs) Okay, so um, I guess if people want more Mm -hmm. of you, where, where should they go? Uh, If you're on Instagram, if you haven't deleted the app, (laughs) (laughs) I am at Dr. Soph. In fact, there is someone who's Dr. Soph. Who is this person? They have a private account. So I'm at underscore Dr. Soph, (laughs) underscore D-R-S-O-P-H. So if you know at Dr. Soph, private account. Yeah, just get her to contact me because seriously, who is this person? (laughs) It's really funny. And then my website, which is drsoph.com, D-R-S-O-P-H.com. And there's loads of free resources on there. Thanks for being on uh, Deeply Curious. Yes. I appreciate you being here. So fun. Um, if you guys are enjoyed the show and you want to help support what we do here, um, head over to jensenav.club. That is our Patreon page where you can get exclusive content and deeper access to the things that we are doing here. And we appreciate all of our Jensen AV Club members. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>